This is this right here is one of the greatest inventions ever. Uh, if you don't have a couple of cans of these at your house, just next time you go to Home Depot, whether you need it or not, just pick some of this up. It's called Wasp and Hornet Killer. It's like knockdown spray. I mean, this is like God's provision from heaven right here. I'm just telling you right now. And they didn't pay me to do this commercial this morning. But uh, you get this stuff, and what's great about it is, man, you can stand, you know, like 10, 15, 20 feet away from a wasp or hornet's nest, and you can squirt them and kill them. And, you know, it gets them really mad when you first hit them, and, and they get really mad, and they all start coming out, and they're like, and then they, and they just die. And I love it. And, and this last summer, um, we have a hot tub at our house. We, uh, we bought one, a used one, several years ago. We'd always wanted one. We were like, man, living in Colorado, the evenings, especially the summer, everything is great. You can get in it. And, and uh, parents, if you want to have a great place for family meetings for your, with your teenagers, it's the hot tub. You got like a captive audience right there, and, and that's what, so whenever we say family meeting, we all know, get your swimsuits on, go to the hot tub. And so we were in the hot tub in the summer, and all of a sudden I noticed these hornets, or they were either hornets or wasps or both, were, started flying around. And every time we'd go out there, we would see them, and I'm like, what is up with these guys? And I realized that one of my wooden slats on the hot tub was a little bit open, and they'd built a nest inside our hot tub. And so I went and bought me a couple of cans of these, and I'm like, you guys are going down. And so I got his stuff, you know, and I stood back and started squirting them. And, you know, they're coming out and getting mad. A couple of them escaped and chased me, and that wasn't fun. But I sprayed these things and, and had a lot of fun. But then, you know, it, it only lasts for a couple of seconds, and then they die, and it's kind of over. And I was just getting into it. You know, it's kind of the adrenaline rush of a guy's going. I'm like, yeah. And, and then I'm, like, knocking on my neighbor's doors. Hey, you guys got any wasps that I could take care of, you know, have a little bit more fun? Uh, but the reason I told you about this is because... Uh, there was an article, a news story that came out uh, uh, several months ago, and in this article, the title of the headline of it was a question, and it said, bad karma, question mark, bad karma. And basically, it was a story uh, that happened in Japan in a Buddhist temple about a Japanese monk, and supposedly in his Buddhist temple there in Japan, uh, some wasp had built a nest inside of his temple. And evidently, I guess in Japan, they don't have wasp knockdown spray, or at least he didn't know about it. Maybe they don't have Lowe's or Home Depot there. I don't know. But he didn't know how to kill them. And so what he decided to do is he took a rag and he put it around a stick. This is a true story. Put it around a stick, put some gasoline on it and lit it and tried to go up to the nest and kill it by putting the fire up to the nest. Well, it killed a couple of them, but most of them got loose, and it just made them mad, and they chased him all around the Buddhist temple, and to the point where they were trying to sting him, and were stinging him, he dropped the, uh, the, the fire, you know, torch he had made, he dropped it, it hit a curtain in the Buddhist temple, caught the curtain on fire, burned the temple to the ground. Now, that's bad karma, <laughs> if you believe in karma. I don't know why I told you all that this morning, but thought it would be funny. No, actually, I told you because as we continue our study today, Return of the King through uh, Revelation, chapter 11 opens with a temple. It opens with a temple in chapter 11. Now, I try to be creative with my titles for my messages and, you know, try to get something that's catchy. And I, I feel like I came up with a really good one this week. The title of the message is The Temple. Okay, it worked really hard on that this week to come up with that one. Now, this is not a Buddhist temple we're going to be reading about this morning, but a Jewish temple that I believe is going to be rebuilt during the tribulation period, uh, the seven years we've been studying about in the book of Revelation, and uh, I believe it's going to be rebuilt. And John here, let me remind you, as we now this week marks like our halfway point through the book of Revelation, 
And we've been, the last several weeks, uh, John has been taking us through that seven-year tribulation period that we believe will begin at the rapture of the church, the next prophetic event to happen on God's time calendar where God will rapture the believers from the face of the earth. That will then trigger seven years of tribulation upon the earth. And most of the chapters we've been reading, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, have been describing the events of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. So we're kind of at the midpoint of the book of Revelation. We're at the midpoint point of the seven years of tribulation and now there's kind of a parentheses in chapter 10 through 14 as john is kind of backfilling some details and so we're still in the first three and a half years or toward the end of it now and he's filling in some details of other things that he sees happening during that first three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation now chapter 11 as i began studying this the last couple of weeks is primarily focused if you're familiar with uh, chapter 11 primarily the focus is on the two witnesses and we're going to get to them next week. I thought I was going to cover all of chapter 11 today. We've been covering about a chapter a week. And as I got into this this week, I couldn't get past verse 1 and 2. So we're going to cover a whopping two verses this morning. And because you know what? As I've said before, our goal is not to just get through the book of Revelation, but that the book of Revelation would get through us. And so we're going to just take a little time this morning. I don't want to rush this. And I am always excited, I think you guys know, to come on Sunday morning and teach teach you guys the book of Revelation. I love teaching you guys because you're here because you want to know the Word of God. You want to understand it. You want to apply it to your life. And I'm always excited to get up and come and talk to you guys. But there's certain Sunday mornings that I can't wait to get up. And this was one of these mornings. I mean, I just couldn't wait to get here and share with you some of the stuff that God showed me this week that I think is going to be pretty exciting to you guys. And so is it okay if we don't just rush through this and I show you some cool stuff today? That'd be all right. Because it, man, fits right in to the times that we're living in, and I'm really excited about this today. I'm going to break chapter 11 down into five observations of John. Um, we're going to call them the measurements, the messengers, the martyrdom, the miracle, and the message. But the, today, we're just going to look at the first one, the measurements of the temple. So let's go ahead and pray, and let's jump into these two verses in chapter 11, and I'm excited to share this with you guys today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we could be gathered here together. I thank you, Lord, for the things you've showed me this week that got me so excited about the days and times that we're living in. We believe that we are closer to your return than ever before. I personally believe that it is very, very possible that we are the generation that will see the fulfillment of these events we've been reading about in the book of Revelation. And I pray that today will be just another wake-up call and reminder as we look around the world and watch the news and, and read the book of Revelation, that we are living in the very last days, and we look forward to your return. And we pray that this would practically have an effect on our lives, the way we live in preparation for your return, the way we share our faith in preparation for your return. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. John says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And back during John's time, you know, they didn't have yardsticks like today. They would actually take a reed, like a bamboo stick, and that's what they would use as their measuring stick. He says, I was given this measuring stick, this measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. That's very significant. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to who? To the Gentiles. You say, who's, who are Gentiles? Anyone that's not a Jew is a Gentile. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months or three and a half years. 
So let's talk about this. What's going on here? John is told to measure the temple of God and the altar and those that worship there. Um, now, you may be just reading through this. You go, okay, measure the temple of God, measure the temple of God. Okay, no big deal. This is a really, really big deal. Because if you know anything about history, if you know anything about Israel, if you know anything about Jerusalem, the Jews have not had a temple for like 2,000 years. There is no current temple in Jerusalem right now. However, John tells us here in the book of Revelation that he is told during the tribulation period to measure what? The temple of God, which means there has to be a temple in place at some point for John to be able to measure it. Are you with me so far? Say yes. Okay, now I'm going to give you a little bit of history. And I don't want this to be boring, but you need to know some things. And, and then it's all going to come together. So hang with me this morning. Let me give you a little history about the Jewish temple that you've probably heard of before. You read a lot about it in the Old Testament. It started out as the tabernacle. If you remember, and we've got to put a picture on the screen up there, and I'm going to move this so I can see these pictures as well. This is a picture, a, a, a depiction of the tabernacle. Uh, this happened when uh, Moses was leading the children of Israel, and God said, build a tabernacle. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was at, where the mercy seat of God was at, where the presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, where the high priest could only go in once a year. And that was the place of worship for the Israelites for, for many, many years. And everything centered around the tabernacle. And you'll notice in this picture when they would go through the wilderness and they would camp out, the first thing they would do is set up the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, the place of worship, and then they would encamp around that, letting us know a very practical example for us that our lives should be centered on worship just as they were in the Old Testament. And then they got through the wilderness, and they finally came into the Promised Land in Israel. And when they got in the Promised Land, and Solomon was the king uh, over Israel, Solomon, uh, God laid on his heart to build a permanent dwelling place for God, or a permanent temple, moving from the tabernacle that was portable to the temple that was permanent there in Jerusalem in Israel. Solomon built the temple, and he dedicated it in 950 B.C. And here is a, a drawing, an artist's rendition of probably uh, what Solomon's temple looked like that was built right there in the center of Jerusalem, dedicated 950 B.C. Worship took place in Solomon's temple for 426 uninterrupted years. 426 years, this was the center of worship in the temple of God there in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. But some of you remember what happened? In 586 B.C., a group of people, enemies of Jerusalem, called the Babylonians, came in. And they conquered Jerusalem. They took all of Israel into exile, into what the Bible calls the Babylonian captivity, which was part of God's judgment for their disobedience. They were there for 70 years. But you know what they did to the temple? What did they do, church? They destroyed it. They burned it down. They completely destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. Now, after the Babylonian captivity, hang with me for a second. They were finally released, and some of you will remember the Bible tells us there were three instrumental uh, people in the Bible, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, that God placed on their heart to take the children of Israel back to Israel. And remember, Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of the city, and then Ezra and Zerubbabel were instrumental in seeing the temple um, erected again and rebuilt that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So in around 200 B.C., uh, the temple was established again, but it was much smaller than Solomon's temple. 
Because they had just come out of exile. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of resources. And so this is a little bit of a rendition of probably the smaller temple that was built under Zerubbabel, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But it, it sufficed. It gave them the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and a place of worship again in Jerusalem. But some of you will remember that Herod came along. He was appointed by the Romans to be the, the ruler and leader in Jerusalem. And Herod, and it was really a political move on his part, because he wanted to uh, gain favor with the Jews and, and you know, get in good with them. And so he decided, he looked at this little measly temple they had rebuilt when they came back. And he said, we can do better than that. And he had all the money and resources. And he really didn't rebuild it, but he did a major uh, improvement project, if you will. And he added on to the temple, which is known today as the second temple or Herod's temple. And it was huge. It was even more massive than Solomon's temple when it was finally finished. He started the work in 20 B.C. It wasn't completely finished, the temple and the court and everything else involved on top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem until 64 A.D. It was about 84 years in the making. Over 10,000 workers built the second temple, which was known as Herod's Temple, or Herod's Temple, that second one. And what is amazing is they finished it in about 64 A.D. After 80 years of work, 10,000 people, and then guess what happened six years later in 70 A.D.? Some of you all know. The Romans came in and conquered Jerusalem, and you know what they did to the temple? They destroyed it, just like Jesus predicted when he was on the earth, and that temple, Herod's Temple, was standing. When you read about Jesus in the Bible going into the temple, it was that Herod's Temple. And Jesus said after he was gone, it would be destroyed. Nobody believed him. And about you know, several years later, the Romans came in and completely demolished the Herod's temple, the second temple. And it was, it was completely burned up, uh, torn down, and was gone. Now, that was almost 2,000 years ago. And there has not been a temple of God since the Romans destroyed it in 70 A.D. Are you with me so far? Say yes. Now... The Jews, make no mistake about it, have been wanting to rebuild their temple for 2,000 years. And here's what's amazing, y'all. We read right here in Revelation chapter 11, John says that he goes down to measure the temple of God. And this is in the context of the seven years of tribulation, the first three and a half years. That means at some point, if we believe the Bible, and we do, there is going to be a third temple. And there is going to be a temple that is rebuilt once again in the same spot Solomon had a temple, in the same spot where Herod built the second temple. There, I believe, will be a third temple. Now, some people, when they study the book of Revelation, and I've told you before, you have to be careful between what is symbolic and what is literal. And the way that we approach Bible study here at the Orchard Church is we take the Bible literally word for word unless God tells us to do otherwise and that it's a symbol or a picture. I do not read in chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 that John is describing a symbol or a picture. I believe he is describing a literal temple of God. If it's not a literal temple of God, then how do you measure it? How do you measure something that's just a picture or a symbol and it doesn't exist? Notice that John doesn't use the words we've talked a lot about, like or as. He doesn't say it's like a temple or as a temple. It's, he says, I was given a reed to measure, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. That sounds literal to me. If you agree, say yes. That sounds real literal to me. Now, the only problem is, people are going, that ain't going to happen. If you know anything about Jerusalem and the Temple Mount today, 
People question, how could this possibly happen? But I believe as we look at these two verses, I believe it's very clear there will be a literal third temple rebuilt in Jerusalem during the first part of the tribulation period. And I'll tell you who also believes it. It's the Jews. So much so that after the Six-Day War in 1967, when Israeli paratroopers landed and came in and took over Jerusalem again, on May 21st, 1967, in the Washington Post, this article was printed. It said, To all persons of the Jewish faith all over the world, a project to rebuild the temple of God in Israel is now being started. With divine guidance and help, the temple will be completed. That was an advertisement put in papers around the world declaring they're going to rebuild the temple. And you say, well, that was a long time ago. Well, let me bring you up to speed. 1987, there was a group called the Temple Institute founded in Jerusalem. And the Temple Institute in 1987 when it was founded, the whole reason they started the Temple Institute was to prepare to rebuild the temple, to get the furniture together, to get the priestly garments together, to train the priests to go in and do the service in the temple exactly according to the Old Testament law. And that happened in 1987, and they have been working very hard ever since. And I want, to watch, I want you to watch a video right now put out by the Temple Institute. It's a plea to rebuild the temple, and then there's a news story that follows. And this was just uh, put together just a few months ago. And I want you to watch this this morning in context of Revelation. Every day, three times a day, Jews recite this prayer. May it be your will that the temple be speedily rebuilt in our own time. It's a prayer they prayed for almost 2,000 years. But Jews here in Jerusalem are doing more than just praying. Just a few steps away from the Western Wall, rabbis and craftsmen are building what they call a temple in waiting. 
We're supposed to build a temple, and nothing about that changed. Nothing about that commandment changed. Heimrichman is a director at the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. The Temple Institute is actively engaged in research and preparation for the resumption of the service in the Holy Temple to the extent of actually preparing operational blueprints for the construction of the temple according to the most modern standards. This menorah is just one of several vessels created for the next temple. It's covered with 95 pounds of pure gold and has a price tag of $2 million. Piece by piece, the third temple is taking shape with priest garments, vessels of copper, gold, and silver, and a new generation of Levite priests, specially trained for temple service. We have enough in place now to resume the divine service and, and to build the temple. But obviously, a lot of things have to happen in order for this to happen. Richmond isn't the only one who's ready to rebuild. You actually have blueprints, architectural oh, yes. drawings for the, the yes. third temple. 3,000 years after King Solomon built the first Jewish temple, another Solomon is laying the foundations for the third. From the womb of my mother, I have a task and a mission in my life which is connected um, with the rebirth of I don't know about you guys, but that gives me goosebumps. When you understand the context of what we're talking about here, because if we believe that we're seeing in our day and time right now preparations to rebuild the temple, guess where that puts us in the context of Revelation? very close to the return of Christ. That's why this is so exciting to me to share this with you. This is not stuff that's just being dreamed about or talked about. It is. They are ready. Did you hear what he said? We are ready to rebuild the temple. We have everything in place. We have the priests in place. We have the furniture in place. They just need permission to do it. And we'll talk about how that might happen in just a moment. But let me give you some other biblical evidence because we never want to base a doctrine or teaching on one scripture alone. This is not the only place in the Bible that tells us during the tribulation, right before the return of Christ, that there will be a temple. Let me give you biblical evidence of the third temple during the tribulation in other places besides Revelation. In Daniel chapter 9.27, and you remember when you're studying Daniel 9.27, he's describing the return of Christ and the tribulation period. That's what he's talking about in Daniel's prophecy. And he said that he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. We studied this several weeks ago. That one week is actually a period period of seven years. It's the final week of Daniel's prophecy. It represents a seven-year period, the tribulation. And he says, during that time, in the middle of the week, or after three and a half years of the seven, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Who's going to bring an end to sacrifice and offering? The Antichrist will. We'll talk more about that in a second. But if, if the Antichrist is going to go into the temple and bring an end to sacrifice and offering, that means there has to be a temple. And there has to be sacrifices and offers, offerings taking place once again. Are you with me? Let me give you another one. And, and, and this Daniel goes on to describe this. He says, And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. That's the Antichrist. Even until the con consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Basically, that's a lot of words that means this. The abomination of desolation. That's what the Bible describes when the Antichrist will go into the rebuilt temple and he will claim that he is God and he will desecrate the, the temple. And Jesus himself 
I mean, if, you, if you'll trust anybody, you'll trust Jesus, right? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, talking about the days just before he comes back again. And listen to what he says. This is amazing. Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, what we just read about, where he goes into the temple, standing in the where? The holy place. You know where the holy place is? It's in the temple. He says, whoever reads this, let him understand. It's like he's trying to wake us up and go, do you understand? When you see the temple about to be rebuilt or you see it rebuilt, just know you are so close to the return of Christ. He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And that's the Jews as they ran out of Jerusalem again as the Antichrist takes over. We'll get into that in our further studies in Revelation. And then Paul talked about this as well. It's everywhere. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 said, let no one deceive you by any means for that day... And any time in the Bible you see that day, it's talking about that day, the day when Jesus Christ is getting ready to come back. He says, for that day will not come unless a falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. You know who the man of sin, the son of perdition is? He's the Antichrist. That's who he's describing. The Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above the all that is called God or that is worshipped. Now watch this. So that he sits as God in the where? In the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. If the Antichrist is going to, the, going to go into the temple of God and show himself that he is God, that means there has to be a temple of God. Scripture is clear. There will be a third temple during the tribulation period. And as we just watched this video, these are exciting times to me that we live in because they're ready to rebuild this temple. But here is the question that keeps people from believing that this could ever happen. And here's the question. How will the Muslims allow this to take place? Because those of you that know anything about Jerusalem right now and the Temple Mount, it is controlled by Islam and by the Muslims and the Palestinians. And there is, on top of that... Uh, Temple Mount, I'll show you in just a moment, is what's called the Dome of the Rock. And mo usually when you see a picture of Jerusalem, that's that big golden dome you see in the background. And a lot of people think, oh, that's, that's Jewish. No, it's not. It's, it's from Islam. It's, it's, a, it's a shrine for Islam and the Muslims. But I believe this will, temple will be rebuilt in that spot, and it will be made possible by the Antichrist, we read about in Revelation chapter 6 that he comes in riding on a white horse offering a seven-year peace treaty between Israel and Palestinians, which if somebody could come in today and do that, can you imagine the hero that they would be? And that's how he's going to be perceived. And he's going to say, listen, you know, the world is in chaos. Everybody's having economic problems. The, you know, the rapture of the church took place. They might not understand, but they know millions of people are gone. And he's going to come in riding on like this white horse, figuratively, and he's going to offer seven years of peace and try to get the Palestinians and the, the Jews and Israel to get along. I mean, you can't turn on the news today that they're not fighting over there and crying out for peace. You know, we were in Israel last year with a group from our church, and everywhere you go, shalom, 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 peace, pray for peace. And he's going to offer this peace, and he's going to just say basically to the Palestinians and the, the Jews there in Israel, he's going to say, let's just hold hands and get along. You know, let them rebuild their temple, Palestinians. You know, maybe uh, Israel needs to give back places like the Gaza Strip and Golan Heights and things like that. But he's going to get them to be willing to go along and get along and rebuild this temple. Now, let me show you how I believe 
that this could take place. And this is what got me so jazzed up as I was studying. Here's a picture of the Temple Mount. And you can see right there the big golden dome. And that is what's called the Dome of the Rock. It is that, that shrine there is not Jewish. It's not Israel. It's Islam. It's the Muslims that have that. It's their third most holy site only to Mecca where uh, Muhammad was born and Medina uh, where they fled to and he was buried. In 630 A.D., a man named Omar built this shrine, the Dome of the Rock, because they believe in, in Islam that this is the place, the very spot, right underneath that dome, there's a rock. They believe that's the rock that Muhammad got up on and ascended back to heaven, and that's what they teach. So this is a very holy, sacred spot to Islam. And under, it's been, this spot right here has been under uh, Muslim control since 1967. Remember I told you about that six-day war? Well, the uh, Israelites did come in, the Jews, and they took over Jerusalem. But there was a general named General Dayan, and because he wanted to keep peace and didn't want to keep fighting with the Palestinians, he gave the Palestinians control over the Temple Mount. They said, we want the city, but you can still have the Temple Mount, and you can still have your Dome of the Rock. That was probably not a good decision. And the Jews have been upset about that ever since. But that spot, this, this place right here, the same place of Solomon's temple, the same place of uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah's temple, the same place as Herod's temple, was right there on top of this huge 35-acre structure. But since 1967, it's been under Palestinian Muslim control. Now, do you think they're going to eagerly or easily give up this spot? <laughs> Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, in October 16, 1989, after the Temple Institute said, we're going to rebuild the temple, uh, they put out an article, and it, the title was a question. It said, it was in Time Magazine, October 16th, time for a new temple? And here's what they said. The merest hint of rebuilding the temple is considered an outrage by Allah's followers who will defend the Islamic holy place to the last drop of their blood. And, they, and when they say that, they mean that. So they're not going to eagerly give up this spot. So we have this huge dilemma. How is it that the Bible tells us there's going to be a third temple, it's going to be in the same place, but yet the Muslims have control of it. They say we'll fight to the death to keep it. I mean, this is, listen, y'all, this is the most sacred piece of 35 acres on the planet. It's been fought over for centuries and so the question is, people study this and they go, how could the Bible be true? Because the Muslims are never going to allow this to happen. I mean, will the Muslims really give up the Temple Mount and the Dome of the Rock to let the Jews rebuild their temple? Well, they may not have to. They may not have to. And let me tell you how. Here's the key. Look at what John said in, Je in Revelation 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Those were John's instructions, to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now, that's very important what John described. I want to put a picture up. This was Herod's temple. The second temple right here is a picture of it on top of that 35-acre piece of property that we were looking at. And Herod's temple sat right here on top of this 35 acres. Now, when John described what he was going to measure, he said he was to measure the temple of God and the altar. Now, there are two different Greek words in the Bible used to describe the temple. One of them is naos, and it means inner temple or holy place and holy of holies. And it's the word naos. 
And that is exactly the word that John used here. He was supposed to go and measure the temple of God, the naos, the inner temple, the holy of holies and the holy place. Let me show you where that is. This is 35 acres right here on the temple mount. Uh, This is part of the temple complex. But this right here, this little building is really the naos. That's where the Holy of Holies is, the holy place, and there's the altar. This right here could probably fit on this stage up here. The Holy of Holies and the holy place. It wasn't very large. It was about this size right here. That's what he was told to go and measure. Now, John could have described not the naos, but the Huron. That's the other Greek word for temple. Now, Huron describes not just the inner place, but it describes the whole temple complex. All of this here and everything else, the court of the Gentiles, pretty much the whole 35 acres. That's very, very important. All John is told to go and measure is this little part right here. Are you with me? Say yes. Now, that's really important how he described that. And then he goes on to verse 2 and notice what he says. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, everything else, and do not measure it. Why? Because it's been given to who? The Gentiles. And even back in Herod's day, this right here and this right here, these open spaces, were called the court of the Gentiles. That's where the Gentiles couldn't go into this part. They could only go into this part. But notice he didn't just say it's the court of the Gentiles. He says it's been given to the Gentiles, who are anybody that's not Jews, which would include the Muslims, Islam. I want to, I'm going to show you several pictures here, and this is so cool. Right now, as you look at the Temple Mount that I showed you, you notice there was a lot of open space up there. You know, it was just a small little dome. Okay, can we go back one picture before we go? There? Yeah, there it is. Great. That dome sits right here. That's where it sits in relation to where Herod's, Herod's Temple sat. Now, let's move ahead a little bit further. I believe that this is, is very possible and probable. According to what John is describing, the Muslims and the Jews will share the Temple Mount together, according to Revelation chapter 11. And when John speaks and says they are to leave out the outer court because it has been given to the Gentiles, I believe that it's very possible, there's plenty of room up there, that on this 35-acre uh, Temple Mount, you'll have the Dome of the Rock sitting on one side and the Temple sitting on the other side, the inner Temple, the Holy of Holies, that smaller structure. Now let me show you, hang on to your seat because it gets better. Let me show you how this could take place and what God is doing. This is just, yeah, I love it, okay? That's why I couldn't wait to get here, okay? Now, I'm showing you here this Temple Mount, all right? Again, Herod's temple set right in this area, and this was the court of the Gentiles. Now, we're going to zoom in. You see this big, huge open area here. It's like, what are you all doing with that? I'm going to zoom in to this little spot right here, okay? Now we're taking an aerial view, all right? Um, I had to fly over there this week and get this picture for you guys. So... This is an aerial view looking down on top of that area. This is the Dome of the Rock right here that that the Muslims have. And I want you to notice right here, and I, I know it's a little fuzzy in the picture, but you see this A right here? Do you see it? Can you see my pointer right there? Okay, there's a, you can't see it in the picture, but where this A is, there's a little bitty gazebo right there. Little gazebo right there. Now, we're going to zoom in. Let's go to the next picture. This now is what... That gazebo looks like. You can see how huge the Dome of the Rock is. And there's this little gazebo sitting right next here to the Dome of the Rock. Now, let me tell you what this little gazebo is all about. You can probably put about three or four people standing under there. This is called the Dome of the Spirits or the Dome of the Tablets. You know why it's called the Dome of the Tablets? 
Because many believe that this spot right here during the first Solomon and Herod's temple, this was the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And you know what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, the tablets. And many believe that this is the spot, and that's why they put this, this structure here called the Dome of the Spirits or the Dome of the Tablets. And they believe this is actually where the Holy of Holies set right here. And some even believe that underneath here, possibly, the Ark of the Covenant is buried. But the Jews can't get up there to do any digging because the Muslims won't let them up there. You know, I, I personally thought Indiana Jones found the Ark of the Covenant back in the first movie, but anyway... But we don't know. But, but, this, but they believe this is the spot. Okay, now it gets better. Watch this. That's interesting enough. But let, let's go to the next picture. Okay, this is looking from into the eastern gate in Jerusalem. All right, this is the same gate that Jesus came in on his triumphal entry and the same gate the Bible says he's going to come back in at his second coming. And you notice as you look at this, the Dome of the Rock is over here to the left. Easter Gate is here. So if you go behind that, back in there is where the Dome of the Tablets is or where the first temple sat directly in line with this Eastern Gate. Are you with me? Now that's important and very significant. Let's go to the next picture. Okay, now we're back on top. The original temple would have sat right here. Here's the Dome of the Spirits. And then if you were to go straight out this way, you would, it would be right in line with the Eastern Gate. Let's go to the next picture. Now, here's an overview of it. Um, right here, again, is the Dome of the Spirits, probably where the original temple was at. And if you come straight down here, do you all see that right there? That is the eastern gate right in line with the Dome of the Tablets. You say, oh, okay, big deal. There's a gate in line with the, the, the you know, what, what does that have to do with anything? Everything! <laughs> Check this out. The Mishnah which is Jewish writings. It's the most highly esteemed book of Jewish oral traditions. I mean, it's almost right up there with the Bible for the Jews. It's been handed down for generations after generations after generations. And listen to what it says in the Jewish Mishnah. It describes that the high priest, when he would stand at the entrance of the Holy of Holies, where right behind him was the Ark of the Covenant, which had the tablets, where now the Dome of the Tablets is at, when he would stand in that doorway and he would look out, the Mishnah said he would look out straight through uh, the court there and he would look straight out the eastern gate. Yeah, wow. <laughs> he would look straight out. It wasn't where the Dome of the Rock is. It's where the Dome of the Tablets is. And there's plenty of room for a temple to be built right there. Do we have another picture? Is that it on our pictures? Got another one? No, we're good. Y'all, that is hugely significant. I believe the Jews could easily rebuild their temple right next to the Dome of the Rock because it would be in the outer court, just like John described it. And it would be given to the Gentiles, and they could possibly sit side by side. If there's a seven-year peace treaty signed, you can see how there's plenty of room up there for them to do that and sit right where it's intended to sit, just like John described. And again, all preparations are be being made right now for that to be rebuilt. I don't know about y'all, but I'd say that is pretty stinking sweet. That is pretty awesome. Praise God. Give God glory, man. That, is, that, that to me, is very exciting. I didn't know all of that. I knew there was going to be a, a third temple rebuilt. I didn't know how it was going to happen. And as I studied this out over the last two weeks and began to look at this, I was like, oh, my goodness. This, everything. It's like God just saved that little piece right there. 
And probably what's going to happen, we don't know for sure, they're probably going to let them rebuild their temple and they're going to stick a wall right down the middle and you know, the Muslims will have theirs on one side and the Jews will have theirs on the other side and the Antichrist will be a big hero to the world for three and a half years and then he'll go into the Jewish temple and he will desecrate the temple and then all hell literally is going to break loose. Now let's close this morning with some practical applications. We never want this just to be historical and doctrinal. We want to make sure this is practical. Let me just give you a couple of practical things to go away with. Again, I can't tell you how exciting this is to study this and realize we are living in the last days. If we start seeing the temple rebuilt, we're really living in the last days. We don't know if it's going to begin before the rapture or the rapture and then it's going to begin. We don't know for sure. But I just know they are ready to roll. And the, and the stage is set for the return of Christ and these things to fall right into line with Revelation that we've been reading about. And now I want you to notice in, in verse 1 of chapter 11, John says he's told to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. He's not just measuring the temple or the altar, but he's measuring people. You see that? The worshipers, those who worship there. This word measure means to evaluate. It means to evaluate it, not just to literally measure it by inches and feet, but to evaluate it. It's kind of like doing an appraisal on a house. We have uh, realtors uh, in our church, and if you've ever bought or sold a house, you know that you know, if you buy a house, you have to get an appraiser to go in once you know, you're trying for it to belong to you, and this is the temple of God. God sends John as an appraiser, if you will, to the temple, and he appraises it to see its value, to see if they're worshiping God the way they're supposed to, and if the worshipers are measuring up, if you will. That, he's not just checking out the temple, he's checking out the people who worship there. Now here's the big question that scholars and commentators differ on, and I'll tell you where I land. The question is this, are these true worshipers? Are these saved worshiping Jews at the temple? Or are they unsaved Jews worshiping through the Old Testament sacrificial system? Many commentators, many very well-respected commentators, guys that I, man, I trust like 99% of the time, believe these are saved Jews. I personally humbly disagree. I don't believe these are saved Jews worshiping at this temple. You know why? Because why are they putting the temple up? So they can start the Old Testament sacrifices again. Now let me ask you this. Did Old Testament sacrifices save people? No, they did not. They were a symbol and picture of the one who was coming who would give the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so basically, they're putting this temple back up. They're starting these sacrifices, and it's a religion of works again. I wish we had time to go there. We don't. Uh, go to Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 12, maybe this afternoon. You can read. That whole book was written to the Jews to tell them, you don't need the Old Testament sacrificial system any longer because Jesus was the once and for all sacrificial uh, body for our sins, and he gave his blood. Amen? But yet they're trying to do that. The Jews, because they today, as a whole, the Jews don't accept Jesus as their Messiah. They, they, don't, they reject that. Now, they're going to get it right a little later in the tribulation. So I believe when they, these Jews come and they worship at this temple, I, I struggle. I don't believe that they are saved worshiping Jews at this point. Because we're not saved by works. We're not saved by sacrifices of animals. Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace we're saved through faith. That's how we're saved. It's still a religious system right now. It's like all the other religions of the world. 98% of the religions of the world today tell you if you want to be saved, if you want to go to heaven, have a relationship with God, here's what you must do. And it's, it's a religion of works. We never, ever, ever offer religion at the Orchard Church. This is not a religious church. We are not a religious group of people. I do not offer you religion. I offer you a relationship. 
with Jesus Christ. That's what we offer. That's what Jesus made possible. It's not about a religious system. And, you know, religion is man trying to do something to reach God. Christianity is God who came down as a man in the person of Jesus to reach us. And that we couldn't do anything of ourselves, and so he did it for us. And so I I believe these worshipers here, with all due respect, in Revelation chapter 11, they do not measure up at this point. Now, here's the good news. After the Antichrist goes in and shows himself that he's God and desecrates the temple, the eyes of the nation of Israel are finally opened and they realize, oh my goodness, Jesus Christ really was who he claimed to be and this guy is not him. He's the Antichrist and the Jews will finally get it right. And it will be an exciting time, and we'll read about that in further studies in Revelation. But Revelation, it's interesting, and we'll see this next week. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 opens with an earthly temple and false worshipers. But as we close next week, we're going to go to heaven, and we're going to see a heavenly temple and true worshipers. Because today, this is the worship that God wants. Jesus said in John 4.23, The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father In a temple? No. In spirit and in truth. Having the Holy Spirit of God inside of you and having the Word of God to guide you. That's how we worship. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in, say it church, spirit and truth. And so I ask you, followers of Jesus today, how, how does our worship measure up? If God right now were measuring our lives and our worship, Does it measure up to a standard? Are we worshiping Him in spirit and in truth through a personal relationship with Him? Not through our works, not through our religion, but through our personal relationship that we have with Him and through His Word and Spirit? How is your worship measuring up today? The worship of your life. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and we bring it to a close. Paul said this, Or do you not know that your body is the what? You see, we we don't... We don't need to build a temple today because our bodies is where the Lord's presence resides if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, because your body is God's temple, it's where His presence dwells today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what we're, here's what we're supposed to do. Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which belong to who? To God. And we need to ask ourselves the very practical question, church. Here it is. Do our lives bring glory to Him? Do our bodies as temples bring glory to Him today when He evaluates our worship? Does our worship inside of here... Man, we've had some great worship this morning. Wasn't the worship awesome? Didn't they do a wonderful job? And we're going to close in worship in just a moment. But listen, does our worship inside here match our worship out there? Is it the same when you get in your car? Is it the same when you go into your houses? Is it the same when you go to work on Monday or kids when you go to school? Our worship is not something that we should just pin to Sunday at 9 o'clock. We are to live a lifestyle of worship every day because God is evaluating, I believe, our worship. Do you believe that? Amen. Now next week, we're going to move on and we're going to look at the rest of chapter 11. And it's fun too, man. There's some characters coming through, two witnesses. We're going to call this God's Witness Protection Program. And you're going to like it, man. I even got a video of these guys. It's going to be cool next week. You don't want to miss it. But let's close in prayer this morning, and let's apply this to our life. Would you bow your heads with me this morning as we close?